I think I heard nervous laughter, right? <laughs> Gosh, we can identify with that. Maybe we can change uh, our attitudes a bit uh, this morning as we talk about this subject. Christmas is not your birthday. Important, important perspective. <laughs> Today we want to uh, look at Isaiah the prophet who gives us snapshots of the Messiah along the way in his prophetic book. And today we want to look at chapter 61 and with special reference to the notion that when Jesus comes, the anointed one comes, the Messiah, that he will come with a special deference to those who are poor and disenfranchised and marginalized. So as I read this text today, be sensitive to those words as Messiah comes to minister to those needs. Again, Isaiah 61, I'll begin reading at verse 1 through verse 7. And as is our custom, I'll invite you to stand to hear God's word. Thank you. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You'll be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you'll receive a double portion Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance, and so will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. May God inspire us today through this powerful word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. I wonder how many of you are old enough in the room to remember the Sears and Roebuck Christmas catalog. Anyone? Boy, how much fun was that? Now, this is decades before the internet. So you had to get ideas for Christmas gifts right out of the book, right out of the catalog. I would circle things for months, just go through that, the toy section, you know, circling things, bending over the corner of the pages, you know, for special reference and all of that. How many of you remember the first bicycle you got at Christmas? Do you remember that? Isn't, that? isn't that good? How about the first Lionel train? You recall that? about the first Barbie doll? Barbie's still very popular. Yeah, she's still, she's still <laughs> making the rounds. So good for you. As, <coughs> I don't know what that means either. It, <laughs> you got me started. That's a problem. As we grow older, though, our desires become a little more sophisticated. Now the demands for the new and slimmer gaming system or the tech tablet or the 6G phone. How many of you expecting the 6G today? I mean, I mean, you're just hoping that it shows up. Yeah, it's a big deal. We're hypnotically lured by the seductive marketing sirens, this mindless consumerism and this continuance that we have to, to feed our children's materialistic, self-focused addictions. And there is an addiction, for sure. It's crazy. According to the National Retail Federation, 
This year, every adult in America will spend about $860 each on Christmas, some form or another. If you have a two-parent home, then that's you know $1,700 in every family. And when you, when you add that to the consumer credit card debt that exists, the average American today has about $16,000 on the balance of their credit cards at those interest rates anywhere from 12 to 16, 18%, you begin to get an idea. This past Monday, Cyber Monday, it is, uh, it's been reported now that Americans went online and spent $2.65 billion on Monday. It's wild. You're beginning to see Christmas advertisements now on TV in September. It's obscene. It's obscene. Christmas has been hijacked and exploited. We profess allegiance to Jesus. We really do. We want, we want Jesus to be the reason for the season. We want to come to church and gather and think about traditional things and focus on Jesus. But listen, there are many pressure points. There is so much stress. There are so many, there's so many cultural ideas and, and, and worldviews that press in on us. That Christmas has been transformed from a celebration of the birth of God becoming a human being into this orgy of materialism. It's nuts. I mean, really, it's out of control. And so I want to I push on that a little bit today. Christmas, after all, is not your birthday. It's about Jesus and about his life in us. Let me ask you a question. What does God look like? Ever thought about that? What does God look like? I mean, when you picture God, what do you see? When you pray to God, I mean, do you visualize someone at that point? I mean, would you recognize God if he showed up? I mean, if he was in the room today, would you know he was here? And how would you know? Centuries before Jesus was born, some of the prophets uh, predicted what Messiah would be like. For example, they said he'd be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, the prince of peace, the government of our lives would be upon his shoulders, of his government there would be no end. We hear that. But we also hear the prophets saying that he would know suffering and rejection. We we learn from our text today in Isaiah 61 that this Messiah would be sensitive to the poor and the marginalized. What does he look like? Expectations of what the Messiah would be and what he would be like we're different from culture to culture. The Hebrews thought that he was going to be some kind of triumphant king, some general, some, some army official who would extricate them from Roman oppression and usher in the Davidic kingdom once again. The Hebrews believed in that kind of Messiah. And the Greeks, on the other hand, thought about the afterlife and, and the quality of that afterlife and that a Messiah might prepare us for that special afterlife. What is your mental picture of God? Who do you... Who do you picture? Who do you visualize when you call on critical condemning judge or a merciful loving parent? A God who favors some over others or a God who loves everybody, all of creation, all at once, loving, accepting, forgiving everyone? Do you picture a savior who's concerned only with saving people for life after death or one who is actively engaged in mobilizing us to actually affect change in the here and now? What's he look like to you? Do you believe that God always rewards obedience with material wealth, physical health? Or do you believe also that God remains present in our poverty and our pain 
and our suffering. What does God look like to you? Let me just remind you that Jesus is not what folks expected. Whatever it is they were looking for, he wasn't quite that. When you think about God, adjectives like powerful and majestic and almighty tend to come to mind, but Jesus did not come to earth with any air of worldly wealth or majestic power, none of that at all. We know his story. He arrived in weakness, a Palestinian Jew, part of a community of marginalized, oppressed people, became a refugee in Africa, uh, just eluding genocide. His formative years were in a nondescript village in a working-class family. What does God look like? I, I actually know the answer to the question. What does God look like? He looks like Jesus. He looks like Jesus, just like him, just like him. He is Emmanuel, God with us. That's the miracle of Christmas. This is the miracle of the incarnation. God is with us. We can get a glimpse of who God is because of Emmanuel. He's among us. In Jesus, we have the face of God. We have his values. We have his priorities. We see all the fullness of his humanity, who you and I are created to be. There's a model for us now. His name is Jesus. We've, we follow our lives. We fashion our lives, we model our lives after him. This is who God looks like. Let me give you three brief points this morning. This is a holiday sermon. It means it's short. The first point is this, Santa Claus Jesus. Santa Claus Jesus. You need the name Jesus there. Too often we view God just like Santa, a genie in a bottle here to fulfill three wishes. The one who promises to fill all our earthly wants and wishes. The one who embraces the idolatry of consumption that supports our human quest for meaning and purpose found in material things. That's the worldview of the Western culture. Uh, think of the way we describe Santa. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So... Our popular notions of Santa Claus reflect the way we've reduced God to a mythical watchdog who judges our niceness or our naughtiness and then meets out rewards or punishments accordingly. The picture that you have of God, listen, the image you imagine of God, who you think God looks like and, the, and what he is like, that will directly shape your faith and your values. Who you think God is will actually inform what you believe about God, and the values that you practice in your lives. We stress ourselves out and even get into debt to create some kind of warm and fuzzy feeling around the Christmas holidays, completely disconnected from the notion that God should be pursued in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, that the presence of the Holy Spirit, God's presence in our lives, should be the highest value without a close second, especially to the presence that accumulate and pile up under a tree. The real meaning of Christmas gets lost in the chaotic clutter of shopping and spending and escalating debt and exhausting preparations and these stacks and stacks of gifts that most of us do not need and the rest of us will never use. The number one question that most of us in this room have been asking as we've considered Christmas shopping already this season is this, what do you get for someone who already has everything? I mean, it's a real dilemma, isn't it? Makes Christmas shopping really hard. You know, if Uncle Willie didn't have any shoes, then you'd know right away what, he, what, what to get him. Man needs some shoes. That's not our problem, is it? It's a whole different kind of 
set of circumstances. Wow. So we've got to reject the notion of a Santa Claus Jesus. Now, so here's the second point. Expect a miracle. You need the word miracle. Christmas is the celebration of a miracle, yeah? But, but we've edged the miracle worker out of his own birthday. But I want to submit to you, it's time to take it back by planning new traditions that focus on Jesus and the work of his Holy Spirit in our lives and in our families and in our culture rather than all the stuff that tends to pile up. There is the miracle of Jesus' birth and there are many other miracles that God wants to do through your life if we will posture ourselves in a way to receive and to give of ourselves in such a way that these miracles can happen. Yeah. Let me just, uh, let me just uh, say something that... that escapes most people because of our traditions and our images and our icons. Jesus the Messiah was ordinary. He's an average. Now this, this is really helpful. Look at, look at a verse of scripture with me from Isaiah 53. I'll put it on the screen. It's, Isaiah said, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now, listen, that doesn't sound like the profile of a world movement leader to you, does it? Me neither. His hometown was Nazareth. Think about this. Insignificant, poor, isolated, no education, no religious experiences. People question the possibility of his messianic office. They say, he's the Messiah. Well, where is he from? He's from Nazareth. He said, mm-mm. No, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. He's in no way glamorous. He's nowhere popular. He is not, he is not handsome. He's fat. In fact, by the time he's 30 years old, he's probably, probably pretty well-worn, weathered by life. He's common. There's nothing unique about him. He's not going to appear in People Magazine's 50 Most Beautiful People. He's not going to be there. Oftentimes when we go to Kazakhstan, there are two questions that people in that culture are free to ask. They're, they're just culturally acceptable questions. And the two questions are, number one, how old are you? And the second question is, how much money do you make per month? And it's interesting to get in an exchange with Kazakhs. Now, now I'm very happy to report that any time I've been in Kazakhstan, there, there have always been moments when people have asked me my age. And when I tell them my age, they are always shocked by how old I am, given how young I look. I will say this, I always, I always miscalculate the age of my Kazakh friends because they look older than they, than they actually are. And it's by reason of use. It's by the, the pressure of culture and the environment and the, and the lifestyle. Jesus was well-weathered, I assure you. You know, I'm not sure, when we step into heaven, you know, just kind of cross into the gates into heaven that day when we walk in there, you know, I'm not sure Jesus is going to be all that easy to pick out. You say, oh, come on, he'll be obvious. Well, maybe he will be. You know, maybe he's got the whitest robe or got the nicest glow or whatever. Maybe it'll be obvious. But if he's just hanging with the crowd, chances are you won't be able to pick him out. You see, the Jesus that we serve, he's not a pretty boy. You know what Jesus looks like? Looks like you. Looks like me. He's just ordinary. He's just average. Now, I don't know what that does for you. Let me tell you something. 
I can believe in a God who looks like Jesus. And I can follow a God that looks like Jesus. And I can imagine the same God that uses Jesus might be able to use me in my ordinariness as well. Could I say it again? God asks us, especially in a season of miracles like this, to expect a miracle and miracles to happen through our lives, through the ordinariness of our lives. And we can say, wow, God, look what you've done. Look what you're doing. Throughout Scripture, we find God using ordinary, common people to affect his will. You remember Moses? I mean, one of the most prolific figures in all of human history. I mean, there's a new movie coming out this month from Hollywood, you know, Exodus. And, and you know, so th there's going to be a depiction of Moses. And, and maybe he's a, a great warrior king or something like that. We don't know what Hollywood would do with him. But here's what we know for sure. Moses was a guy who couldn't complete a sentence because of a stuttering problem. I mean, when he goes before Pharaoh, it's not like the movies, let my people go. It's not like that. He goes in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, what do you want? And Moses goes, and he refers to Aaron, his spokesman. He said, God has spoken to my man Moses here, and he wants you to know that you should let the people go. Because Moses can't get the sentence out without stuttering. He's common. He's ordinary. He's restricted. He has disability. He's, he's, he's not a 10, 10, a 10 talent guy. He's not all handsome. He's not all articulate. He's not all that. He's not charismatic. He's just common. And God uses him. I mean, this is the way God chose David, King David. Goes, he sends Samuel, the, the priest prophet, to to Jesse's house, and he says, I think the next king of Israel comes out of your family. Do you have any sons? They got a bunch of sons. Well, let's see him. So he trots out the big, strong one, the oldest one. He says, this one, he's good. And, and Sam, and, and he said, no, that's not the guy. They go through the whole rank. He said, you got any more sons? And Jesse said, well, we got one left. He's just a little runt. He's not good for any little snot-nosed brat. He's always in trouble, mischievous, a little ruddy the only thing he's good for is chasing sheep around. Yeah, you know, you don't even bother with him. <laughs> he said, well, let me see him. They trot little David out. Prophet goes, that's the one. That's the one. That's the one God chooses. Are you, are you beginning yet to feel yourself qualified to be used of God? Because these are the kinds of folks that God uses. I mean, Elizabeth is in our narrative here in the Christmas season. This, this preacher's wife who is beyond her childbearing years and suddenly, miraculously, it becomes pregnant and bears to, into the world John the Baptist, the precursor prophet of Messiah Emmanuel. Man, oh man. This is just God using ordinary common people and vessels to affect amazing, miraculous change in the world. And Mary herself, the mother of Jesus, you don't go lower than that. You just wouldn't pick her. And there she is, common, ordinary, but devout and willing. Expect a miracle, friends, and expect it through your life. Third point, last point. That is paying the price. Paying the price. The message of Christmas is about a sacrificial gift. Now think about it. It's easy to feel excited about a newborn warmly wrapped in a manger bed of straw. I mean, it's easy to feel warm and fuzzy and cozy about that. 
This Jesus of the cradle poses no threat to our lifestyle, no threat to our cultural ideologies, no threat to our worldview, this little baby, because everybody identifies with the baby, and there it is, it's sweet, and you know, there's all this potential, and it's hopeful, and it's warm, and it's, it's nice, and we feel good about it. And no one gets threatened by the baby. But here's the thing. That cradle of Bethlehem comes with a cost. There's a cost there. You cannot separate the cradle from the cross. You can never view the nativity and any image of the nativity without also seeing it in the shadow of Calvary. There's a price that has to be paid. The Apostle Paul put it this way. It's in Philippians 3.10. I'll put it on the screen for you. He said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And people go, yeah, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And then he adds, look at it, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Whoa. Wait, wait a minute. You see, in order for miracles to happen, in order for Jesus to be glorified, someone has to pay the price. Someone has to go. Someone has to give. Someone has to pray. Someone has to sacrifice. Someone has to suffer. Someone has to pay. There's a cost. There's a price to following Jesus. Costs us something. Costs us everything. Two stories that came across my desk this week. One from one of my college buddies. We were in each other's weddings, you know, that sort of thing. We've been lifelong friends. And his daughter, just this past week, with her young husband and three small children, moved to an island in the Indian Ocean just off the coast of Madagascar. <laughs> Let me tell you where Madagascar is. If you, picture, if you picture the continent of Africa in your mind, you see Africa, just to the right, as you're looking at the map of Africa, just to the right is a, a large island called Madagascar sitting in the Indian Ocean. And just to the, north, to the northeast corner of Madagascar, so between the island Madagascar and the continent of Africa, there's a series of islands. These islands are inhabited by thousands of people. But the gospel's never been preached there. There's no running water. There's no electricity. There, there is rudimentary life. Water is pulled out of a well every day. Everything is done by hand. People live in huts. There are thousands of these islanders. They speak their own language. And so my friend's daughter, with her precious little family, packed up and went to this island off the coast of Madagascar, where she is now learning the language, making friends, and, and prays to win people to Jesus who have never heard the good news of the gospel. And we go, what? Wow, that's great. Why don't you join her? If you think it's so great. Someone has to pay the price. Someone has to do it. Yeah. Second story comes from a notable evangelist in the world who reaches large crowds of people with his preaching. And he has a volunteer that has served on his team 
for a number of years, and he was a retired man. And on one occasion, he sat down with his retired friend. He said, why, why do you follow me all over the world in these, these campaigns to help me uh, preach to these thousands of people? He said, you could be home. You have, you have a wife. You have grandchildren. You could sit at home and entertain your grandchildren and enjoy that fellowship all the time. Instead, you, you, you're out here following me around the world. Why do you do it? And this retired man looked at him, and this is what he said, and this is what got my attention. He said, I don't want to die sitting looking at the TV. And then the evangelist finished his story and he said, two years later, the man did die. He said he died sitting under a tree in Tanzania. You say, that's, that's a great story. That is so inspiring. That is so great. Well... You're a retired person. How many hours a week do you sit watching TV? Breathing air and getting old. Isn't there something else you could do? Because someone's got to pay the price for this. This is the message of that cradle. Someone's got to give. Someone's got to go. Someone's got to sacrifice. Someone's got to suffer. Somebody's got to die. For others to live. I make an announcement today. We're going to raise $50,000 for children in our own town, in our Samaria, and children in our Jerusalem. And everyone kind of has a warm response. Yeah, I can see the need for that. That's good. Let's do it. Listen, we'll never hit a goal of $50,000 unless you, beginning with me and we, all approach it sacrificially. It's the only way you get there. Someone's got to pay the price to perform these miracles. And all I'm suggesting to you this morning is that we can't enjoy the presence of Christ and the wonder of this miracle of the incarnation at Christmas if we are utterly consumed in the cultural pressure to run around like chickens with our heads missing and laying down our credit cards every time we turn around. We just can't do it. Can't be done. We've got to change our ways. We've got to fight it got to resist it. We've got to establish new traditions, new expectations in our families. We've got to lower, lower the expectation for all of this stuff and raise the expectation of the way we experience the presence of Jesus in our own hearts and in the lives of our family. And the way we do that is by giving and by going and by serving and by opening our hands and being generous because we know what God looks like. He looks just like Jesus. And that's what Jesus would do. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So I made, a, I made a list. I put it in your outline. Write, write the note. Make the call. Visit the shut-in. Invite the needy family to your home. We have numbers of people in our church families. You know single persons that literally on Christmas Day, you know because of their absent family or their distant family, that single person will be all alone. And so they invite them into your home. How good is that? This is beautiful. Give lavishly to the Hope for Kids offering. Do it. Volunteer to wrap presents at the mall. Beth and I will be doing that on the 23rd. Supply and serve the Blood and Fire Christmas outreach. We just had an invitation to do that this morning. Volunteer at the Muncie Mission. First Choice for Women. Christian Ministry. Some of the other agencies in town. Just go knock on their door and say, here, I'm here to serve. Tell me what you need me to do. It's not hard. And there will be something to do. 
Go to the jail and visit someone. Make your holiday celebrations all about Jesus and others and not about yourself. Slow the pace. Slow it down. Ask God to give you creative ways to celebrate his life, his goodness, his miracles in your life and family. And God will answer that prayer. So could I encourage you today? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ is going to last. Let's keep the focus on him, can we? Yeah? Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, help us to get a clear picture of who you really are. Lord, in this season, help us to see Jesus. Gosh, so many distractions, so many temptations, so much stuff. Help us to see you. Help us, we pray. Lord, answer our prayer. Help us to see you. And Lord, give us imaginations. Plant seeds within us for each one of us to establish Christmas traditions that focus more on your presence than on all the material things. Help us to see Jesus and experience him. And Lord, maybe you would also call us. Call us into a mission during this holiday season. Help us to give. Help us to go. Help us to serve. Help us to do something for others so that as we're as we're walking with you and seeing you clearly and experiencing your presence, we can perform miracles ourselves as you give us grace. Help us now in all of these ways, we pray. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.